Well, for the next eight weeks, here at the beginning of 2018, we are going to look at the parables of Jesus. We won't get to all the parables of Jesus, but these are stories that Jesus told during his earthly ministry. Now, you may be familiar with the term parable. If you are, then you know that it's actually a transliterated word. You know what transliterated means? It means there was a word in Greek or Hebrew or some other language, and we didn't have an equivalent, so we just took that the way that it sounded, and we just imported that sound, and we created a new English word. It's like baptize, right? In 1611, the King James translators, they didn't have the word baptize. They had baptizo in the Greek, and there was this big political controversy about whether you sprinkle or dunk, depending on which, are you in the Church of England, or are you part of the Roman Catholic Church, and who are we going to please, and who are we going to, uh, you know, how are we going to make this translation work, fit the kind of political correctness of the day, and so they just said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just take the word baptizo, and we'll just create a new word, baptize, and so baptize actually means to dunk, right? So uh, John the baptizer, John the Baptist is John the dunker. Um, we don't, talk like that, but it's just funny. We have transliterated words. So parable uh, in Greek is parable. And that's it. It literally means to throw alongside. To It's a comparison. Jesus would use uh, physical realities, earthly stories about things people could relate to in real life to make spiritual application and, and to bring out truth. And so... Um, you think of about an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning, right? That's kind of the Sunday school definition of a parable. And we're going to start this series in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, and if you, again, if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the back table. That's yours. Um, we're going to go to Matthew 13. And we're going to look at, uh, there's a parallel, you know, sometimes in the gospel, the same events happening in different passages. And so you can look at Mark chapter four. We'll, we'll touch Mark four just a little bit, but Matthew 13, Jesus has just come home from kind of a a ministry tour. He's casting out demons and he's healing the sick. And, uh, at the beginning of this, uh, arrival at home, the, the people there in his hometown bring him another person who is demonized. So so we've kind of dropped the language of possession or oppression because really it's just a a spectrum of how much influence the demon has in the life of a person. So we just say demonized and then we can talk about how much control that entity has, right? So they bring this person uh, to Jesus and so this man is demonized to the point that he can no longer speak, he's mute and he can't see, he's blind, And so uh, Jesus casts out this demon. And it says in the text there, prior to Matthew 13, it says suddenly his sight was restored and he could speak and everybody marveled at this. And all the people begin to talk about, surely this is the son of David. They start to ascribe to Jesus this title, this connection to this ancient prophecy that the son of David, the root of David, one of the offspring of David would come. He'll be the Messiah. He's going to reign, right? And so as they start to talk about that very excitedly, the religious leaders who are present at the casting out of this demon, who are probably motivated by jealousy at what they're hearing, right? They begin to castigate Jesus and accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, who's the ruler of demons. It's just another name for Satan. Jesus corrects their twisted logic. He tells them that they're a brood of vipers because he was very politically correct. And um, he, he basically calls them evil. And, and so, then, so then they ask for a sign. They said, well, give us a sign to prove to us that you are uh, the one. And so he tells them, so I'm gonna, the only sign you're going to get is a sign of Jonah, right? Three days, three nights in the, in the great fish corresponding to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? So you're only going to get the sign of Jonah. So then we come to the text of Matthew 13. 
So let's look at this together. I'll put it on the screen for us if you, if you want to look there or read along in your Bible. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell upon rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And this is what he said. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, their eyes are closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand in their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. He's going to explain the meaning. Ready? He says, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately he receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and then when tribulation comes or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately that person falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. For what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make your word not only applicable to us today, but that your spirit would illuminate it to our hearts. We, we can't understand it apart from your Holy Spirit, and the depth that you want to, to show us what this means. And so Lord, I, I just pray your spirit would be free to work here among us to take this and apply it, to make it personal for us in our context, and to let the truth of what you said here just root itself deep in our hearts, just in the same way that the seed fell on good soil, that your word would find good soil in our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. So for Jesus, the point is not whether or not you hear, it's how you hear. Right? For Jesus, the point is not whether or not you hear, but how you hear. There are four conditions revealed by Jesus in Matthew 13. 
The first soil represents hearing with a hard heart. It's, it's described as soil that falls along a path. It's ground that has been trampled and walked on and packed down and hardened and beat down by constant traffic upon it, right? And the evil one comes because when that seed is sown, it just lays there. It, it can't get in. It's just hardened soil. And so the evil one comes in and he snatches away that which has been sown, Right? It doesn't have a chance to sink in, to get into the ground. And so you go, well, what makes a heart hard? Well, the Bible says it's sin. Sin makes the heart hard. Sin hardens the heart. And, and a heart that is hardened will sin more, right? It's a cycle that starts. And so there's a principle. Sin will lead to a rejection of God's truth and the hardening of the heart. And the more that that heart hardens, the more that that heart wants to reject the truth of God's word. It just feeds itself and feeds itself. And so virtually everything described about God in the Bible is going to be offensive to a person who is hardened in their heart. Whether this means God's sovereignty, his holiness, we talk about his love or his unchanging character or his judgment. All of that's a completely different mindset uh, from the kingdom mindset of God's people. And, and that kind of talk is just snatched away. It's just taken away from a hard heart. Hard-hearted people are particularly called out in the kingdom parables because kingdom means to rule, right? Every kingdom has a king, right? And you're not him. And that's the problem with most people who hear the gospel in the world today is that we really prefer self-rule. We want to be autonomous completely, to, to, to be free from any authority over us. And that's, this is what the parable's about, uh, the kingdom, right? People want to be their own gods, make their own decisions. The second soil represents hearing with a shallow heart, a shallow heart. Jesus describes it as seed that falls on rocky ground. Now, if in your mind you see a bunch of rocks and stones in the ground, that may be true. But really, I think what Jesus was getting at was that the depth of the soil was really shallow and there's some bedrock underneath, right? Those roots don't have a chance to get down deep in the soil. And he says the shallow hearts are attracted to the joy and excitement of a church where much is happening. This is why church planting is so hard, by the way, in, in the U.S. Because we, we've created a church culture where lots of activity and flurry are the marks of a healthy church, quote unquote, right? And so people are drawn to what I affectionately call the big sexy rock show. And they hear the gospel and they seem to fit into what's happening. They seem to find a place to plug in and, and get busy and get active doing some things, but then something will happen inevitably. There'll be the loss of a job or some sickness or a moral failure or another person comes into their life that begins to draw them away and pull them away from Jesus. And, and that's all it takes. That's all it takes. We've, we've seen this. We've all seen this, right? And, and so uh, please understand, just being in church, saying the right things, doing the right things does not make you alive in Christ. It's interesting to me, and this is not in my notes, but it's just I'm remembering James says uh, he has a parallel passage in, in his epistle that the sun rises with its scorching heat, right? Um, but that in agriculture, sunlight and heat are necessary for growth. So even though this is, um, this is what, what do you say, um, trial, tribulation, hardship, well, it's interesting to me that the, the implication is that those things are necessary for the Christian to grow. Right? But when that comes into a life, if you fall away, you're a shallow heart. That's the second soil. Here's the third type of soil. It represents hearing with a distracted heart. 
Not a shallow heart, but a distracted heart. This is the one where the Lord describes as being sown among thorns or, or weeds, right? They hear the message, they respond to the message, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth come in and cause a distraction. Those things compete for the affections of the heart. Worrying about whether I have enough stuff, uh, the accumulation of wealth. And we don't need to point out how many lives are choked out by riches today. It was true in Jesus' day. We know because of our Lord's many warnings against uh, riches and and his kingdom teachings. Think about Matthew 19. He says, I tell you the truth. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying wealth is sinful. He's simply saying that we have a tendency to put all of our trust and all of our hope in our accumulated stuff. And when we do that, we've missed the gospel. We've missed God's heart. Think of this. If it was true in Jesus's day, among a people that we would regard, for the most part, as very, very poor in comparison to our standard of living, how much more true is this in our day? in our culture, when we're choked with riches and choked with stuff and everything that speaks to us via media is always saying, you need more, you need this. You're not fulfilled as a person unless you have this thing and we're, we, we get caught up in that pursuit, right? There's something else to point out here too. Riches do not choke a person out all at once. It's a very gradual process that happens in a heart. It's a subtle process over time. It's a slow fade. And so again, I just want to say before we move on to the fourth soil, there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. It's whether or not it's distracting us from God's work in our lives and taking kingdom over the priorities of God's agenda, right? Can you have wealth? Can you be a follower of Jesus and have wealth? The answer is yes, you can. In fact, God may have, uh, may have wired some of you to generate wealth. I hope that he has. I hope that he has right? But, but that's not everybody. As that's a stewardship issue. That's a stewardship issue. Here's the fourth soil. It's a soil that represents hearing with an expectant heart. Jesus would say in Matthew 13, ask for what was sown on the good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields. What's the point of agriculture? What's, what's the point of sowing seed? It's to gain a crop. It's to reap a harvest, Right? God gives grace for people to hear with their hearts, but there needs to be some expectation that God might speak. You have to open your heart to that reality because the reality is in a strange way, the kingdom of God has come to be received by some and rejected by others. And though we may not understand that the kingdom will only have partial success or or in our eyes in this life, partial success. And this success is partly dependent on humanity's response. How are we responding to the gospel when it's presented? So the question is, do you have an expectant heart? Do you you come to God with an expectation that he will speak to you? We just sang that song. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to me, right? And, And so do you find yourself reluctant to pray? Reluctant to receive his word? Because the difference is that in the case of the fruitful soil, the kind of hearing that's described is an ongoing, warm acceptance of the word of God in a person's life. It's like soil that's continually cultivated and nourished to encourage growth and fruitfulness. It's good soil. And so we get the parable here in Matthew 13, and we get the meaning of the text because he goes on later, right? He explains it to his disciples. He says, here's what it means. But there's this other chunk of scripture here in between in Matthew 13 that deals with what some theologians call the messianic secret. 
In Mark 9, Jesus would say this, as they were coming down from the mountain of transfiguration in Mark 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of God had risen from the dead. Right? He says, don't even talk about this until I've risen from the dead. In Matthew 16, it says, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. In Mark chapter 3, he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. And in, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You go, what is the deal? Did he not come to save humanity? Did he not come to bring salvation to humankind? What's going on? Do these passages seem to suggest that Jesus was keeping a secret from some people while he was incarnate and down from heaven? So this mess, the answer is yes. The messianic secret, if rightly understood, is not Jesus' attempt to permanently keep people from knowing, believing in, and following him. Instead, it is a temporary strategy Jesus employed in order to accomplish redemption at Calvary so that all might be saved through faith after his plan is fulfilled. Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, we speak of God's secret wisdom a wisdom that was hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age in the first century, right? This is the context. They didn't understand it because if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Get that. Jesus is hiding his identity. He's hiding the truths of the kingdom from the wise and learned of his day Because if they had understood who he really was, they would never have crucified him and we would be in trouble today. We would not have salvation. There's a greater purpose at play in the gospels. Jesus knew that had they believed in him before the right time, they would not have crucified him. Therefore, the Lord graciously taught in parables to those on the outside, Mark 4, this is the parallel passage I was telling you about, that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, that's not a forever thing. That's not a forever thing. We know that from Romans 9 and 10 and 11, that there's a partial hardening that's come upon the Jews so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. And then at the right time, God's going to redeem Israel. We know that. But it's for our glory, Paul says. It's God's secret wisdom that's been hidden, but he's done this for our glory, 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. And so all the, this is the context for all of the parables. All of the parables in the Gospels fit into this context. And so in Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel, he would say it this way. And when he was done, those around him with the 12 asked about these parables. And he said to them, to you it's been given the secrets of the kingdom. But for those outside, everything's in parables so that they may indeed see but never perceive, may, he- may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And then he said to them this. He says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand the other parables? So what you're going to see in this series as we continue on, this is like a key to a map. And you look at the key and you go, oh, that's what that symbol means. Oh, I see it over here in this place. Oh, that must be a, right? This is the key to the map, right? And we'll see this play out. What do we know about the Israelites of that day? Scripture reveals they have been, become calloused. This is Acts 28, 27. They have become calloused. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Now may I just say to you, they were not born calloused, but over time their hearts had grown hardened because of religious self-righteousness, which prevented them from hearing, seeing and responding to the revelation of God. At this vital moment in human history, they are being judicially hardened 
This is the, the definition of judicial hardening. Or they're being cut off, Romans 9, 1 through 3. Or, or later in Romans 11, Paul would use the language, they've been sent a spirit of stupor so as to seal them in their already callous condition. L- let me give you another analogy. Suppose my 11-year-old daughter, whom I love very much, she's not in the room right now, um, suppose that she was told that she's not to take cookies from the cookie jar in the kitchen. And that's a pretty regular thing in our house. Don't touch the cookies, right? And in another room, out of sight, she can't see me. I peer into the kitchen and I notice that my daughter is looking longingly at the cookie jar. This again is a very normal occurrence at the Satterfield house. She looks around the room very cautiously to see, is anyone watching me, right? She's about to steal a cookie and she knows that she's not supposed to steal a cookie. She knows that she is sinning. Now, I could, as father, step into the room so that she sees me prior to committing this sin. I could intercede. I could step in. Upon seeing me, she would forgo her evil plan, right? She would give up the idea of getting a cookie, at least until I was out of the room again, right? Not a long-term effect, short-term effect. But suppose that I decide not to step into the room. Suppose I decide to remain out of sight and allow her to be tempted and then pounce upon her with her hand in the cookie jar. Now, by not stepping in at the moment that I saw she was being tempted, did I cause that temptation? No. I allowed it to continue, but I did not cause it. I did not determine for her to, to desire to steal or to take what she shouldn't have. I could have prevented the action by simply showing myself, but I chose not to do so. This is like judicial hardening. Okay? By simply hiding the truth that I was present and watching, I allowed my daughter to be tempted and to act in her sin. Am I culpable for that sin? No, I merely allowed it, though I could have stopped it. God could have stepped into the first century. He could have clearly shown himself in Christ and made all of the Jews of that time believe in him. He could have ordained a Damascus Road experience for the whole nation, but he did not do it. He had a larger redemptive purpose in mind. Do you see this? You guys, you're tracking with me? Scripture tells us that God hardening the callous Jews in order to accomplish a greater redemptive purpose through their rebellion was for our glory and our good. And it's God's ordained plan to bring redemption to the world through the crucified Messiah at the very hands of those rebellious Jews. Acts 2, that's Peter's sermon. That's what he says to them, right? So Jesus is not attempting to persuade everyone to come to faith in great numbers as we see following Pentecost when Peter preaches in Acts 2. Quite the opposite seems to be the case. In fact, to accomplish the redemptive plan through Israel's unbelief, we see Jesus actively instructing his his apostles not to tell other people who he is yet. Moreover, Jesus purposefully speaks in riddles in order to prevent the Jewish leaders to come coming to faith and repentance. So when great numbers begin to believe that Jesus was truly prophetic, notice how he responds in John chapter six. Uh, They go, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew from them and went up on the mountain by himself. He's constantly withdrawing from the crowds. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what they want to do. Earlier in John's gospel, in chapter two, it says many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and they believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. John later in chapter 12 would reveal that's God's redemptive plan all along. He says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. 
And this was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they could neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts nor turn or I would heal them. For what reason could they not believe? Is it because they were rejected by their maker before the world began? Is it because they're being born guilty in Adam's sin and thus incapable of responding willingly to God's own appeals to reconciliation? Of course not. They're being temporarily blinded in their already callous condition so as to accomplish redemption for all of humanity. This is not about God rejecting most of humanity before the world began. John seven thirty nine. The spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We believe that Jesus is only revealing his identity to his closest followers and he's hiding the truth from the rest. And so we understand that Jesus is using parabolic language to blind the self-righteous Jews of his day from recognizing him as their long-awaited Messiah. So that, I want to be super clear about this because this is the context for all the parables. That alone is the reason his Jewish audience was incapable of coming to him in faith. Our salvation is the reason. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that all of humanity are born morally incapable of coming due to some kind of incapacitated nature due to the fall of Adam. If that's true, if it's true that all people are born morally incapable of willingly responding to faith and God's revelation, there'd be no rational reason for Christ to use parabolic language in order to hide the truth from the Jews of his day. You don't need to blindfold a corpse. Tracking? You with me? God's expressed purpose in all of this is a bigger picture of bringing salvation to all of humanity. Whereas in John 6, Jesus speaks contextually of the disciples who have become apostles, saying that none may come unless the Father grants it. The time would come when his words to Nicodemus in John 3 would become true. That when the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw all men unto himself. That just hasn't happened yet, right? Whereas Jesus has limited his ministry to the Jews with some incursion into Samaritan territory, his parting words to the disciples as he ascends to glory would be to go and tell all nations the gospel. You see the difference? You see the difference? And so let me give you, I'm, let me give you another parable. This is the parable of the emergency broadcast system. Right? This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. We have all heard those words and we have all heard that super annoying, impossible to ignore sound come through our radio, in our car, on our television. We've all heard it, right? We've all heard it. Why did they test the system? because they want to make sure that the government is able to communicate with the entire U.S. population, or at least as many as possible, in the case of a catastrophic emergency, right? So they regularly test the broadcasting system. But what if one day, on the heels of that annoying, impossible-to-ignore sound, came these words, this is not a test? What if you heard these words, Seek shelter immediately. And here are instructions on how to find a fallout shelter or shelter in place due to nuclear attack. Would you heed those instructions? If you did, if you heard the message broadcast and you heeded those instructions, you'd actually be believing in faith the message that you'd heard. You'd be repenting because you'd be turning away from your previous course into a new course of action. And you'd be acting on that information. Isn't that interesting? Some might hear the message and some might disbelieve it. 
but many would hear it and believe it. But don't miss this. The U.S. government has gone to extravagant lengths to see that the message gets to every man, woman, boy, and girl, if possible. And the working assumption of the U.S. government as the one who sent the message is that the population can hear and believe and respond to the message. If that weren't true, there'd be no reason to to send it. If those things weren't possible, then getting that message would be a complete waste of time. So what I want to say as we wrap up this first parable is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for the church. Listen, this is so important. The universal directive of the message that the gospel is to go to every nation, God's saving grace, it speaks directly to and necessarily implies the expectation that humanity in our fallen state can hear, repent, and believe that message. The act of faith and response is brought about by the grace and power of the sufficiency of the message itself. The message is sufficient. Man's response to the message of grace is not a meritorious work that somehow earns salvation. It's an act of faith. God's gracious works don't need more grace to work. They're sufficient to accomplish the purpose for what he sent them. In fact, I put some scripture here on the, on the screen for you. Isaiah 55, 11. My word, God says, it goes out from my mouth, will not return to me empty or void, but will accomplish all that I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It is sufficient. John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. The things that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Look at the order, order order salutis, the order of how it happens. These things are written so that as you read them, you may believe, and in believing, you have life. You read, you receive the message, you hear the word, belief and response, faith, salvation. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the purpose of God's word is really clear. God sent the gospel to make an appeal to those who are lost so that they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, right? It is true. Let me just wrap this up for us. It's true that no one can seek God on our own. But hear me, brothers and sisters, we are not on our own. We've been given the word of God. He's given us his word. How does the fact that we can't seek God prove that we can't respond willingly to a God who's actively seeking us by the powerful Holy Spirit inspired gospel? Tell me this, is proof that I can't pick up the phone and call the president of the United States proof that I can't answer the phone if he were to call me? Of course not. We all agree that God takes the initiative. The real question is whether or not you believe in the gracious Holy Spirit wrought truth of the gospel and in its sufficiency to save. Sufficient as an initiative from God. We all agree. No one can fulfill the demands of the law. How does that prove that no one can admit that fact? Or that no one can place their faith in the one who fulfilled the law in our place? Listen, the inability to be perfect does not equal the inability to trust in the perfect one. Spiritual deadness is separation from. It's not a lack of moral inability to respond to God's appeal to be reconciled. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that spiritual deadness equals a corpse-like inability to respond to God's gracious appeals. If you want to take that analogy that far, why is it that people have different reactions to the gospel? Why do we see four different reactions in the parable? There ought to be none. 
or at least two, positive and negative, right? There are four. Since the biblical analogy of being dead to someone is to be an enemy or to be separated, Paul teaches in Romans 6, we're to be dead to sin, right? He says, be dead to sin. Obviously, that doesn't mean believers become incapable of sin. It means that just as once we were separated from God and enemies of God, now we're to be separate from sin and enemies of sin. It's separation. Only the word of God has the power to cut or to pierce that hardened heart. That's Hebrews 4. And he's given us his word through his son and then through the apostles and the scriptures by his Holy Spirit. So my question for you this morning is what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Are you dead in your sins? Are you hardened in your heart? Last week, uh, so cool, our vision cast, our time together, uh, we said, you know, 2018 is a year. We want to see 25 people come to know Jesus. We want to see 25 people baptized this year. And I just, I I was praying and praying and praying. And Tuesday night, I went down to Monroe to preach at Salt down there with the young adults. And I was teaching on true and false conversion. And this girl comes up to me after the service. She says, can we go pray in the lobby? I'm so convicted right now that I have been a false convert and I I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I came to Jesus with wrong motives. I need him now. Wow. Check one off. I have 24 to go. And it's only the first week of the year. Let's keep that pace up right? Instead of 25, let's shoot for 52. Let's just go one person a week. Let's go two people a week. Let's just cry out to God for what he can do, right? So excited about that. Man, where are you in relationship to the gospel this morning? Because the emergency broadcast alarm is going off right now. You're hearing it. It's me. Jesus has sent preachers and pastors and teachers to give us the word and say, here's the gospel, right? And and he's called you to be part of that too in your workplace, in your school place, in your life, in your neighbor's relationships, right? It's going off. Heed the warning, respond to the message because a fate worse than nuclear attack awaits those who do not come in humility and faith. Believe me when I tell you that you do not want to stand before the judge of the universe and give an account for your sin apart from the precious blood of Jesus. This is the seed that has been scattered. This is the seed that is being scattered. What soil are you? Are you producing fruit? I know many of you are. How will you respond? What kind of heart do you have? How will you respond to this word? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you continue to do that work in us and through us as we uh, relate about these things, as we share lunch together today, as we hang out together? God, would you continue to make us more like you? Really, that's, that's the desire of our hearts. God, I pray for every heart in this room, wherever they are on their spiritual journey, that you would cause them to take next steps in faith and pursuing Christ-likeness. Whether it's coming to faith, coming to salvation for the first time, or being refined and sanctified by your spirit, Lord, we submit to the process and we ask these things in your matchless name.